Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Simon Johnson, you have written a book here with Darren Asimoglu. I believe I pronounced his name correctly. I was just going to say, I'm glad it's you and not him because his name is hard to pronounce. <laughs> but the book here is called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And I read through this and there was something here that really jumped out at me. And it's about AI, artificial intelligence. And we hear a lot about this nowadays, chat, GPT, all this stuff, how AI is going to be this great opportunity not just an investing opportunity, but an opportunity to enhance productivity, do a whole bunch of other things that are going to be great for humanity, great for corporations, if I dare say, and things like that. And you don't quite buy it. Tell me why. Well, I think, uh, Nathaniel, the core problem in, in our perspective is that the, the default trajectory we're on, the one that's driven by the, the visionaries of Silicon Valley, let's call them, is one in which the emphasis is on machine intelligence, which is sort of a little bit of code for replacing people with machines. And, and when we look back over a thousand years of history, I mean, it, the book is basically the backstory of the generative AI moment, which is today. When we look back over a thousand years, episodes when people have been replaced by machines have been much less favorable in their outcomes for most people than moments where we figured out how to use machines to make people more productive. Now, that's the key distinction that we need to focus on today again. Got it. Okay. And I wanted to read something here um, from you. This is actually from the bibliography. It says, AI is likely to generate more limited productivity benefits than many of its enthusiasts hope because it is expanding into tasks where machine capabilities are still quite limited and because human productivity builds on tacit knowledge, accumulated experience, and social intelligence. Talk to me about that angle. Yes, this is the uh, idea of so-so automation, which Duran and, and his co-author Pascal uh, have introduced in a, in a Restrepo in, in, in a series of papers. So a good example would be um, self-checkout kiosks at grocery stores, where the work has been transferred onto the customer in part. They're okay, but they're really not great. And the productivity of, of workers has not gone up. Uh, the, the, the marginal work or the additional work you might hire, the effect on profits also seems to be pretty pretty low, actually, in the self-checkout. 
uh, world. So mostly what they've done is sort of created more aggravation for customers that they have to put up with. No signs of like a major productivity breakthrough, for example, the kind that we got when Henry Ford automated um, the factory line and, and for making cars. Okay, so in what ways are is uh, the uh, existing AI limited for that, do you, do you think, or do you know? And, and what are your ideas for how it could be better? Well, I, I think this the, the problem, Nathaniel, is, is, is replacing people completely. Well, that's, that's the vision, right? So he's uh, saying that we don't want customer representatives. We want an AI to do that instead. It's pretty difficult right now. I mean, and also you don't just want platitudes when you call customer service, right? You want somebody or something that, that can solve problems, that can mobilize resources, that can actually solve your problem. And all, usually it involves actually getting through to someone with sufficient responsibility. And that and that's, can be extremely aggravating. We would rather um, support the, the, a vision that's, that's been there in the development of computers, but it's not the ascendant vision right now, which is use the machines and the algorithms to enhance individual capabilities enhance what people can do. Just like we're using Zoom right now to enhance our ability to communicate and our ability to see each other. We could have talked on the phone before uh, Zoom came along. Now we're using Zoom. It's much better, I think, for this kind of conversation. Let's look for opportunities to enhance individual characteristics and what people can do using AI rather than replacing people. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And I I don't want to um, draw away too much from the the broader topic of the book, which is about inequality and how progress or what we conceive as progress has not always resulted in benefits for everybody. And in fact, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw in another quote here. I'll read another one here. We wrote this book to show that progress is never automatic. Today's progress is once again enriching a small group of entrepreneurs and investors, whereas most people are disempowered and benefit little. And and AI, like I said, this is only just a chapter in this. It jumped out at me as one because it's so topical nowadays. But broad, more broadly speaking, you think that this th- these advances that we've made in technology, they don't necessarily benefit everybody. In fact, they can they can be a net detriment to yeah. most. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the pattern of the last thousand years where we've had this this long trajectory of technology improving and productivity improving. So you could say, well, what's there to complain about? But actually, when you when you when you look at the episodes more closely, there was always a struggle to see who would benefit. And in some of those struggles, including the medieval times, including the early industrial revolution, there was a huge amount of innovation and very few people prospered. Now, in the 20th century, it went much better. There was much more sharing of the gains from productivity increases. But after 1980, so 40 years ago, uh, that sharing really receded, became much less uh, salient, and we've had a widening of inequality uh, in wages and, and and in incomes. And many people who haven't finished college, for example, in the United States, have not gained in terms of real wages over the past 40 years. So that's kind of dramatic, considering mm-hmm. that we continue to invent, innovate. We've had the whole digital revolution. Uh, we've, we've had a lot more pressure on companies, supposedly, to become more efficient. Where have those gains gone? Because they mm-hmm. were real gains. They've gone to a few people. Mm-hmm. So what is the, what is a, a potential outcome that can happen of this? What do you think needs to happen? What do you think will happen, if anything? Well, I think on our, on our current trajectory, which is sort of put the blinders on, charge straight ahead, try to replicate what humans can do, the, the so-called machine intelligence approach, I think we're in for a rough ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to be replacing um, intellectual labor, just like we replaced human labor early in the Industrial Revolution. And 
if that happens with, with big increases in productivity through automation, there can be spiller, positive spiller effects on the rest of the economy and the other parts can grow. But if what you're doing is really just replacing the people, shifting the balance of power, if you like, between capital and labor, and you're doing it really fast, which is what the whole GPT line of generative AI seems to promise, then it's going to be very hard to generate uh, enough new productive tasks for the people who are either displaced or they never get an opportunity when they graduate from college or, mm. or school. And, 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 and we could be talking about a, a much bigger hit to our labor market than we've seen in a long time. What happens after that? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but those, those sorts of hits don't usually lead to good political outcomes. Mm -hmm. And again, there is historical precedent for this where new technology has caused there to be a, a lot of unemployment and, and things like that. And like you said, you, you see that the more recent advances in technology are more, more of the type that we saw several hundred years ago than, than what we saw in the 20th century. And the 20th century had plenty of, of hardship as well. Sure, the, it's yeah. true. That's true. Although the Great Depression was was mostly not about technological uh, unemployment, and when we've had disruptions in historically, it's mostly uh, in, in places like the United States caused low wages. So people get a job, but you know they're, they're driven to fast food or, or other low productivity activities where their wages are, are lower. So we haven't experienced mass unemployment after 1980, not on a secular basis, but we have experienced a big widening of of income differentials. Mm -hmm. So that widening. You know, I'd say on our current course is is set to 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 get become even larger. Mm -hmm. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. And importantly, here you also say that the the businesses won't even necessarily benefit from this. Yes, based on what we've seen so far, I think the productivity gains may be quite limited. Companies may still adopt it because it's fashionable and also because it tilts the balance of power in their view away mm. from labor. So it makes labor more, more compliant. Mm. Um, but the the idea that there's going to be major breakthroughs like we saw in the early 20th century with mass uh, manufacturing, that right now does not seem to be um, imminent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is the remedy here for all this? This this disconnect here between, I guess, power and technology and, and uh, the the inequality that we're seeing like do you do you have anything to propose yeah we, we have three um proposals that are that, that we're, we're they're leading with right now one is what uh and all three are, are based on expertise of other people to be to be clear we've really deeply thought about these things but we think we can pull them all together in one package uh jaron lanier the computer scientist arguing for data dignity so that we should own our data and we should come together in, in various forms of agglomerations or, or consumer unions and use that um, as leverage vis-a-vis -vis the big uh, data companies, the AI companies. I think that's very interesting, very important. And without that, probably other th good things can't happen. The second idea is to really put very strong safeguards around surveillance. This idea is, is um, preeminent in Shoshana Zuboff's book, The um, Age of um, Surveillance Capitalism. Um, and, and I think she's absolutely right. And there's a lot of bipartisan support also for constraining surveillance, not, however, support for that idea in China. And that may mm. be the new split, the new global split, maybe between people who are very careful and constrained surveillance and other countries and, and leaders who, who go all in on surveillance, the authoritarian countries of the world. Mm. And I think we may just have to recognize that. And the third piece comes from uh, Kim Clossings, who is a professor at UCLA Law School, former senior treasury officials, who proposes that we have a graduated corporate income tax 
tax on profits based on how much profit you make. So it's based on the level of profit like income tax um, is or should be. Um, right now we have a graduated system, but it goes the other way. So small companies may pay more than big companies as big companies can hide their profits. We need mm. to flip that and say, if you're over, for example, $10 billion in annual profits, then you'd pay a, a tax rate of 35%. But if you if you lower in terms of annual profits in, in, in one company, you pay a lower rate. And of course, what that would do is give the companies an incentive to break themselves up because their shareholders are going to be saying, hey, why are we paying 35% when we could be paying 21%? Let's create some value for the shareholders. And this would also be good for management, actually, create more opportunity. What we're pushing for there is plurality of business models. So don't just have, for example, two companies control the entire AI space. I don't think you can get there through regulation or through the courts, so it's going to take a very long time through the courts, but you can get there through the corporate tax system. And I think that's a that's definitely something we should we should we should propose and push forward. Oh, very interesting. Okay. I mean, isn't that a bit of a non-starter, especially considering that, you know, let's face it, these political parties are bankrolled by corporations. Well, it's it's an it's an uphill struggle, of course, but right. it, that's always the case in any of these uh, any of these policy questions. And I think what we're going to see with AI is such a concentration of power and such a concentration of of profit that people are going to be looking at saying, "Wow, wait a minute, why did these guys have all the profit?" And it's not elsewhere in 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 even the the business ecosystem. Other companies are going to get squeezed. So within the corporate sector, I think there will be support for this. And we're not this is not confiscatory vis a vis business. It's saying the largest companies with the largest profits should pay a higher corporate tax. But hey, if you want to make yourself smaller, you can go back down to where the corporate tax rate uh, was in the past. Absolutely uh, no problem about that. It's it's regulation through taxation, encouraging competition, which all the private sector claims that they like. Mm. Yes, until they don't. What I'm wondering if you have any thoughts here. This has come up before on this podcast with other, other uh, book authors and academics who talk about the and we've talked a lot about antitrust and how it's basically it was originally intended as as a a tool to kind of accomplish exactly what you were talking about or at least prevent the opposite from occurring and that's kind of not been the case recently if you look at the numerous mergers that have happened do you have any thoughts on that or is it outside your your area of expertise uh, but we thought a lot about antitrust in in this context and and, and more broadly i think that the um the problem is, yes, it hasn't been hasn't been used very aggressively. It's also evolved to be more effective against mergers and acquisitions as opposed to organic growth. And we're talking about organic growth prim- primarily here. It's also obviously very targeted to, um, let's say, traditional forms of market power where you get a monopoly, you raise price and you squeeze consumers. That we can recognize. But when you give stuff away for free or when you have other business models of the kind of platform digital economy, it hasn't been um, quite, quite, quite so quite so effective. You know, I, look, I think redress through the courts when there's conspiracy is a very good idea. Uh, the conspiracy to um, corner markets is, is generally illegal. But I don't think that's what's going to get us immediate action here. I don't think that's what's going to move the needle. You need to think more, it's, it's in the age of AI and the age of generative AI, where there's creative problems coming at us from all directions, we need to get more creative on the solutions. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, and you talk a little bit here about, and you just mentioned it, this idea of surveillance, and that would actually be one of the major advances, if you can call it that, that AI will bring about. And you said that one way to redress this would be to just basically not allow it, um, not allow corporations to do it or, or limit them. But would corporations really be beholden to this because they can now without will employment they can they can limit people's freedom of speech sometimes because they need to and other things so would that really be something that they that these companies would would adhere to even if they do agree to sign off on it 
Well, you're going to obviously need you're going to need some uh, you're going to need some enforcement on that, mm. and you're going to need um, you know protection for individual rights uh, in an appropriate manner. I, I think that's going to be very important. This stuff doesn't happen by itself. I'm sure you're right. The companies will lean very heavily towards more more surveillance, as will local government, by the way, as will police forces, as will security yeah. agencies, and so on. So I think you have to put safeguards in place, and you have to have enforcement uh, of them. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is not everyone's uh, favorite by any means, has proven very effective in protecting consumers against the abuses, um, some of the abuses that we used to see in the financial sector. So I think that kind of focused consumer, if you like, rights, but of course, it's also worker rights. And the, and the good news here is that both uh, people on the right and people on the left don't want unfettered surveillance in this country for slightly different reasons, but actually very related reasons uh, that, that they are you know extremely concerned about who's looking over their shoulder and with good reason. And they don't know who's going to be in charge of the government next time around. <laughs> and yeah, they fear right. that that might be used against them. So I, I think that's fair. And I, and I think very strong, clear safeguards on that and limits on what private companies can impose on people. That's going to be important. And, and you're going to see, I, I would suggest in, in China, very different outcomes. Uh, we're going to publish this book, uh, Nathaniel, about 20 countries, 20 languages around the world. We were approached by, including in Taiwan, we were approached by a mainland Chinese uh, publisher whose representative said, well, we'd like to publish it, but this is what we need to cut out. And it was about a third of the book. So oh, not I'm surprised it's only that little. Well, <laughs> perhaps they were offering us a special deal. I don't know, but we're not yeah. going to do that, obviously. Yeah. But that, but that's because anything about social media, anything about the Communist, the Communist Party, anything about surveillance, all of that stuff would have to go in, in those proposed cuts because that stuff is very sensitive because that's what they're doing. Yeah. And you just raised an interesting point. I mean, you guys aren't necessarily after the money that would come from any proceeds you get from China, but many consumer facing corporations are and have had this exact dilemma and have effectively rolled over for the Chinese government to access those consumers. And so that's kind of a one 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 issue where maybe um you know this this that doesn't speak very well to this this whole thing and who might win, right? Well, you're certainly right that many companies have, have um, gone out of their way to accommodate the Chinese government uh, wishes, primarily, I think, because they thought that down the road, there were future profits sure. to be had from the Chinese market, which large, which many, in many cases turned out to be illusory, by the way. Mm. Uh, look, what, what a company does in China is, to some degree, its business, as long mm. as they don't transfer sensitive technology and so on. Uh, but that shouldn't have any impact on what we allow in the United States. Also, I think it's very clear, uh, and, and this is you know, something that's come through more in, in the debate about the Chips and Science Act last year, for example, that we still have a technological edge over China in key aspects of technology, like semiconductors that matter a lot for the development of AI. And we are not calling for a slowdown in that uh, innovation, by the way. We want innovation to go more towards helping people machine usefulness rather than machine intelligence. I don't think stopping innovation generally ever works. And, and if you try to stop it, people will just say, well, China's going to do it. And then you're actually going to get more support from the federal government, not less. So I think let's continue with innovation, but let's have it. Let's have more plurality of business models. Let's have more competition at every level of, of the um, supply chain for artificial in, intelligence. And let's do what we're good at, uh, which is generating ideas that add value. And, and let's constrain and restrict what has been, a, you know, a bit of a weak point in this society for a long time, which is tends into tendency to slip into um, unguarded surveillance. Mm. Do you think? Is there is there no you know kind of market solution to this? Just to put on a purely capitalist hat here for a minute, you know, and and you have, if you look at social causes, for example, many private corporations, for whatever reason, have 
pushed, have been at the forefront of pushing for some of these. Um, and is could it not be that there will be some new type of company that comes along with AI and does things the right way? Is I mean, there's not an entire, I mean, the whole idea of profit and, you know, good doesn't have to be entirely divorced, does it? Well, look, I think I think we're in in the midst of an episode that can be summarized by Milton Friedman's uh, saying, one of his favorite sayings: "The business of business is business." Yeah, right. Uh, so, could we have plurality of business models? Could we have alternative ways of organizing ourselves? Could a- AI empower that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Is that what we're seeing right now? Is that what the the, the sort of central driving force is? No, no. It, mm-hmm. It's profit seeking. It, it's standard Silicon Valley uh, type thinking. And and I think we should be realistic uh, about that, and we should deal with that on its own terms. Uh, and the key to that would be um, preventing there from being a monopoly of business models and a mon- monopoly of mental models, actually, I would say. So I think the part of the danger of the what we're getting from GPT and what we're seeing coming out uh, from, from Google is that they, they're tending to a certain way of, of organizing the data and presenting the data and emphasizing this um, machine intelligence replace the humans aspect. And that's where you're going to see a lot of the businesses developing following that. Let's push it in a different direction and, and let's have the argument and let's, you know, we, we go see these people in person when, when they'll see us. Let's have these conversations in private. Let's have the discussions um, in, in, in public and see if we can move the business models towards a plurality of thinking about what's appropriate and so on. And, and let's, um, you know, put the safeguards in in terms of a very high corporate tax rate on mega profits, because those will be windfall profits resulting from massive market power that's in part power over our brains. Yeah. Yeah. That's the scary thing here. One of the many scary things that we've talked about. Uh, do, you, do you have any idea? Have you seen in your travels, in your work, any um, companies that might be examples of doing things the right way that you talked about? Or is it all just like really following the, the Silicon Valley venture capital type of thing? Well, it, it's it's very it's very early days. Um, of course, there is a polarity community uh, that attempts to do this. It, it's coming out of related to, but perhaps going beyond Web3. So those ideas are in in the mix. I don't think they're particularly salient or or well-funded or making a huge amount of progress, certainly not compared to the the GPT uh, line of models, the the large language uh, models. I think that those are dominating the conversation right now. And of course, that's part of the problem is that when you get the hype and you get the concentration of attention on a particular way of organizing data and doing business, that's where everybody tends to get pulled. Mm, okay, interesting. All right, cool. Simon Johnson, I want to come back and ask you some more questions, ask you about your background, what you've done prior to writing this book, and talk some more about it. But let's uh, first take a short break. If you're a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. 
and we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. All right, welcome back here with Simon Johnson. I believe you are at uh, MIT. This is the segment of the show where we ask our guest uh, more about himself in this instance and what he did in his, uh, well, up, up till now, until his in his career. Um, and so very curious to hear, uh, yeah, you, what, what, what you've been doing and how you uh, came to write this book. I know you wrote a, another one that we want to talk about a little later for a different reason, but yeah, go, go ahead. Well, in 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 a nutshell, I'm I'm an economist. I have a PhD from MIT actually in the 1980s, and I worked on uh, economic development and financial stability and technology, economics of technology issues for a long time. In the early 2000s, I worked at the IMF, and I was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund 2007 2008. And coming out of that experience, I wrote a couple of books because, of course, we were in the midst of the global financial crisis. One was called 13 Bankers about what had actually gone wrong with the financial system. Second book was called White House Burning, which was how the financial crisis had affected the fiscal system, because obviously <laughs> we are experiencing a series of fiscal problems and fiscal debates in the US, including the, the current one on the on the debt ceiling again. Um, and, and my um, subsequent book, the most recent book but prior to this one, was called Jumpstarting America, which was attempting to look at a more sort of how do we uh, accelerate growth and how do we spread the benefits of growth around the country. And, and that led me to this book, which is a thousand year backstory of how we get to this generative AI moment, what, what this moment means and, and how we could get do better in terms of shared prosperity if we study and think about some of the things that went right and some of the things that went wrong in, 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 in that thousand years of history. Mm. And uh, before anybody thinks that this is all just kind of fancy talk, you did the, the previous book did lead to some actual outcomes in Washington, D.C., right? Tell me about that. Right. So we published Jumpstarting America in 2019 and had some some positive response, but uh, limited response. We were proposing a big increase in science spending and to spread that around the country and, and ways to actually implement that. And I think what happened then was COVID arrived and COVID, mm -hmm. of course, was a massive shock to everybody's thinking about everything, including distance, including science, including you know how we organize um production and, and, and society. And coming out of that, people were looking for ideas and, and, and you know, sort of things to do differently and, and maybe a little bit better. And we got bipartisan support for ideas around the science uh, funding and the science deployment of funding model that we had in our book. And this became um, a part of the what's known as the Chips and Science Act of, okay. uh, of 2022. 
Um, and we'll see how people do with it. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot um, of, of of work to be done. But at the local and state level, there's there's tremendous enthusiasm for building scientific and technological capabilities, involving a lot of people in it. So there's a human capital education piece as well as a, a science piece. Um, and uh, it seems like there's, there's there's funding available from the government as well as enthusiasm from private sector funders on commercialization. So early days, yeah, sure. But it was gratifying to push people in in what we regarded as the right direction. Oh, very, very cool, very interesting. So I'm curious, like as somebody who's who you stu- obviously you were very involved with the 2008 financial crisis, and have studied you know human innovation, the history of it. So I'm curious where you see our current setup, if you will, with um, yeah. I mean, we have this new 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 forms of innovation on the one hand. We just had a kind of a mini banking crisis that may or may not be completely over yet. And the economic cycle seems to be winding down now after COVID. And there's some talk, there's always talk about there being a new crisis. But where, where, where do you view things in, in, in that whole thing? Well, I think on, on the crisis point, crises are to be avoided because they get in the way of everything, right? They mess up yeah. everything. They, they they hurt a lot of people. And I think we did well to avoid the problems, broader problems coming out of Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature Bank. Uh, perhaps that could have been done a little bit better, but you know, it's a crisis. Things are always a scramble. So we'll see what happens as the Fed uh, dece- manages to um, decelerate inflation enough. We'll see if it's a soft landing or a or a, or a harder landing. But the, the bigger issue, of course, and if you look at how countries do o- over a period of, of, of decades, is what happens to productivity, what happens to the underlying growth um, taking out a, the, the, the cycle, and what happens to, in terms of development and application of, of, of innovations. And you know, we have this fantastic machinery for innovation in the US, but we've become terribly fixated on a few digital ideas that have been um, you know, they've been high impact, but they've not uh, led to shared prosperity. Uh, they've contributed to a widening of income inequality. So isn't there a way we can take that same innovativeness and do what we did in the 40s, 50s and 60s, which is create a model with much more shared prosperity? Uh, we have a new initiative at MIT, Initiative for the Study of the Future of Work, that is trying to develop exactly actionable items along those lines. Very private sector oriented, very much about getting the policies right, but also about um, constructing a narrative and helping people understand what's the economics of this, why does this make sense, how is this good for the country as as a whole. Um, And, you know, I I think the good news is a lot of people want to have this conversation, particularly after 40 years that have been a bit disappointing in terms of shared prosperity. Mm. Yeah. What do you make of the argument that, you know, what we saw in the 50s and, you know, uh, largely due to America being able to export stuff and and now we're you know, we become a more of an importer and also all the offshoring that happened. And that's kind of a genie you can't put back in the bottle anymore. Um, do you think about that at all? Sure. Look, I, th- I think manufacturing um, can well co- can come back in the US. We can have an increase in manufacturing mm-hmm. output. I don't think manufacturing employment will necessarily go up a lot. So that's the, you know, it, jobs went offshore and are not coming back idea. However, I think we can create a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs around science and technology, innovation, for example. We can absolutely sell to the world. I mean, we're 320 million people in a world of 8 billion that's going to 10 or 11, or some people say 12 billion. Those people have a lot of problems. We have the deep innovative capacity. We are much more able to invent things and deploy technologies than anyone else I've met around around the world. And so I think you have to ask the question, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? What are the solutions that we're proposing? 
how much are we charging for that? I think America is extremely competitive if you see it in those terms. We do tend to trip ourselves up. We do tend to get very uh, self-absorbed and, 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 and have these crazy fights among ourselves. No one else can even understand what we're talking about. But once we, get, once we get out of that, once you go beyond that, US is, is a tremendous positive force for the world for this century and as far as I can see beyond that. So as long as we can hit that and tap into that and, and not ruin ourselves inadvertently, I think we're going to do well. Mm. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency and if that's going to be uh, – because it's another thing that's very topical in the news right now, admittedly outside the scope of your book, but yeah. Well, that was the, that was the uh, very much dealt with in my th- three books ago, mm. uh, White House burning. So the, the U.S.'s reserve currency is obviously a, a, a massive advantage that's been conferred on us. The world lends us the capital that, that we use. Uh, we borrow, if you like, for to finance our consumption, but also for to finance a lot of our investment. And as long as they continue to do that, it's, a, it's an amazing deal. And, and why would you rock the boat? Uh, the question is, how long will that continue? And I think it's unwise to assume that will last forever. Although, despite the disruptions of the past let's say 20 years, including the rise of China and the global financial crisis, COVID, and and now whatever we think is going to happen around AI, that the dollar is still very attractive or more attractive uh, than the alternatives, which is what it takes. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Okay. So do you think like here, putting on your political science hat, I mean, some of the stuff that you you speak of, I mean, it it is, it does sound, you know, pretty alarming. And if you look at the collapse of societies, I mean, you know, it looks like the type of some of the stuff has happened before and not to very good effect. Um, do you think we're at risk of that in the U.S.? I mean, I'm assuming we're at, so we're always at some risk of it, but how realistic would, is it to expect any type of actual political upheaval in the U.S. at any point? Um, do you think about that at all? So I'm I'm an immigrant to the United States. I chose to become an American, and and I, I really like this country, and I like its political system, which is not a fashionable thing to say. But what I particularly like is we have a, a lot of open competition for ideas, and there's a lot of people who are looking for better solutions. There's a lot of pragmatic pragmatic politicians. Uh, governor Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, was at MIT a couple of weeks ago, and we were talk. He has a book uh, talking about how to get things done at the state level. And you know, I, I had 150 mid-career EMBAs and their bosses in the room of all kinds of political persuasions. And they all love what Baker was saying. And they said, yes, we need more of this kind of practical problem solving approach. So I think this streak of pragmatism runs very deep in American societies. I do think that polarization is is a problem. And I do think that polarized labor market outcomes, some people do well, a lot of people do worse and worse and worse. That is absolutely a problem in terms of making people angry, in terms of making them frustrated and making them not believe in, 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 in the political system. So without question, we, we've got some pretty big tensions in, in the US. I think we can find a way out of it. I think we can find better jobs for more people. And that will help it massively on all the other um, issues that we fight about. Yeah, well, that's so optimistic. You're sounding American. But yeah. <laughs> so yeah, with that, uh, I will put the link in the show notes for how you can pick up a copy of the book on your digital device or physically. And thank you, Simon, for coming on and talking with us. Thank you all for listening. And with that, we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Actually, wait, I forgot to ask you one thing, which is how people can get in touch with you, um, whether you have a social media presence. I did see, I did follow you on, on Twitter. So do you have a small yes, one? Yes, yes. Uh, on, on Twitter, it's called at Baseline Scene. Um, 
And uh, we absolutely welcome people to follow us there and tweet comments, reactions to the book. We will be building a, a, a social media conversation. Not sure how much longer social media or Twitter will last, but you know, I, I think I, I think that part of the social media is good, letting people in, engage on 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 serious ideas seriously. So look yes. forward to that. Very cool. All right, yeah, check that out. And with that, again, we'll thank you for listening and look forward to speaking to you again next week. See you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.